On March 13, 2008, the citizens of Omaha, Nebraska were shaken as news broke that there had been a double murder in Dundee, one of the city's normally quiet, affluent neighborhoods. It was a mysterious crime that on the surface made no real sense. But it was abundantly clear, however, that whoever this murderer was had gone there that day with that purpose and that purpose alone, to kill. It was a crime that left detectives scratching their heads. Days, weeks, months, and ultimately years would pass without any clues or evidence pointing towards any suspects. The case grew cold and left the citizens of Omaha wondering, was there a killer among them? Five years and two months later, on Mother's Day of 2013, Omaha would be struck yet again by another double murder. And it brought the first double murder case back to life. Evidence at the scene left no doubt that these two cases were connected, leaving investigators faced with the terrifying possibility that they were dealing with a serial killer. And it brought about a renewed sense of urgency to get these cases solved and get the killer behind bars. Today, we are going to examine these murder investigations to try and find the answers to some burning questions. How did these four people, who had no obvious connection to one another, end up murdered five years apart in eerily similar ways? Why were these people targeted? Who was responsible? And we are going to try and figure out if important clues were overlooked early on that, if investigated more thoroughly, could have prevented the second double murder from happening. This is the 190th episode of California Dreaming, the tale of Dr. Serial Killer. Hello, dreamers, and welcome back to the podcast. I'm really looking forward to continuing on with this series. And this is part two. That was pretty quick, right? Well, I've kind of been on sort of an upswing right now, and I figured I may as well give myself a bit of a space cushion in case I have an emotional breakdown later on this week. I'm just kidding. But no, this is the second part of a multi-part series. So if you haven't listened to part one, pause this here, listen to that one first, then come back to this or binge it all later on. I don't think this series is going to be quite as long as our six-parter on the Kissel Brothers. It looks like it might be about three or four. I don't think it'll be any more than that. I also want to get back to the Patreon series on the 2011 death of Josh Hilberling when he fell through his 25th floor apartment window in Tulsa, Oklahoma. In the 10 years since his death, there have been some developments in the story and a shifting narrative when it comes to Josh's widow, Amber Hilberling. You can gain access to these Patreon episodes with a subscription that starts at only $1 per month. There is a little bit more content for subscribers at the $5 tier and above, but even for $1, you have many, many hours of exclusive content to listen to. Your support on Patreon keeps the lights on over here and keeps us moving forward. If you prefer to not sign up for a subscription, you can help out the show through PayPal by using my email, californiapod at gmail.com. This week, I'd like to thank Michelle H., 
Nina M, John V, Jennifer C, Delcy R, Gwen N, Elaine F, Diane C, Thomas M, Diane F, Rachel Y, Teen S, Linda V, Julie H, Beth C, Lauren C, Christina S, and Melissa M for either joining Patreon, raising their pledge, or donating through PayPal. I might have some more thank yous in the next episode. I'd have to double check. I'm trying to get current and up to date. If you haven't heard from me, it's because I haven't really been on top of things, but please send me a message and I'll make sure to give you a shout out in a future episode. Other ways that you can help the show and give us a boost is to leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or any of the platforms that you listen to your podcast on. It really gives us more visibility for new listeners to discover us. Okay, I think the small talk is over with, so let's get on with it. And as a reminder, some of the information regarding this case came from news articles and court documents online, as well as a book written about this case entitled Pathological by Henry Cords and Todd Cooper. Any direct excerpts from the book will be cited in the show and in the show notes, along with the links to the online articles. The spring of 2008 quietly rolled over into summer, with detectives being no closer to solving Dundee's double murder than they were the day that it happened. And time marched on. Other cases came up, but that didn't mean that Tom Hunter and Shirley Sherman were going to be filed away and forgotten. There was always going to be someone checking back on that case, working it. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the dead ends are going to suddenly come to life. Omaha homicide detectives were just going to have to shuffle things around once in a while, prioritize, wrap up cases, and try to come back to it. Towards the end of summer, a different detective was assigned to Tom and Shirley's case, Detective Scott Warner. But that would be all the department could dedicate to the case. Initially, they had seven detectives working on it, but that needed to be dwindled down to just one. But Detective Walk continued to provide Detective Warner support since he had done most of the initial investigating. He really couldn't step away from the case because he really wanted to solve it. Wah and Warner would turn out to be a pretty good team, even if their personalities were a little bit different. Warner was the studious, sharp-dressed detective. Detective Wah, he preferred to do without the suits and ties that they were supposed to wear. In fact, he usually kept a tie close by that was pre-knotted, just in case he had to throw one on in a pinch. Detective Moi had a pretty foul mouth, but Warner, you never hear a curse word come from him. And in an interrogation room, it made for a pretty good good cop, bad cop trope. And they were both impossibly consumed with Tom and Shirley's murder case. They talked about it with each other constantly. It was the thing that bound these polar opposites together. So as 2008 was dwindling away, Detective Moi had been entertaining the possibility 
that something happened with Tom that involved his online gaming activities, which led to this crime. He did have a few people that he did not know in person, but interacted with on a regular basis when he played video games. Was it possible that someone crossed over from Tom's Xbox into his actual life? As far as Detective Moi could see, these people were little more than usernames on the screen. Otherwise, they were nameless, faceless, anonymous individuals, and they weren't just scattered across the United States, they were scattered all over the world. Tom did regularly go into a chat room for kids called Yville. I'd never heard of it, but from what I found online, it's touted as an educational site tailored towards users between the ages of 8 and 14. Its users interact in a virtual world setting where they learn about science, geography, art, and a host of other topics. It was founded in 1999, and from what I saw online, it is still active and has about 5 or 6 million registered users. And it appears like it could be a safe place for kids, but I don't know. I don't think anything on the internet is foolproof. So as Detective Wall was digging into it, he did find that some of the people Tom was interacting with on Yville were a little bit older than they claimed to be. There was one girl they found in his contacts that was 17, another guy, at least one guy who was a college student. It just brings up some red flags no matter what. If you're a college student talking to an 11-year-old while telling him that you're younger, it is creepy and police are going to be looking at you if something happens to happen to the 11-year-old. In the meantime, Detective Warner was looking in another direction, a direction that took him back to the Crichton Medical Center connection. A few days after Tom and Shirley's murder, Tom's dad had a meeting with the head of the pathology department at Crichton, Dr. Roger Brumbeck. They decided to take some time to go over any and every medical student, intern, and resident that they were associated with through their dedicated pathology department dating back at least 20 years to 1990. There were dozens of people to sort through. And Bill and Roger sat down and meticulously went down the list one by one to try and figure out if there was anything at all that stood out as being troubling or problematic. Eventually, their conversation began to narrow down to one person in particular. He has not been identified online or in the book. He is simply referred to as the Russian, so we will refer to him as that here in our story. The Russian spent three years working in the pathology department at Crichton Medical Center from 2004 through 2007. During his time there, he seemed to have a number of issues with other department interns and residents. Some found him to be weird and menacing. He just acted kind of bizarre, and he didn't seem to have an understanding of what it meant to not cross into other people's personal space. The Russian had become such a problem for the department that Dr. Roger Brumbeck demanded that he be subjected to a psychological analysis and his status be placed under review. 
Dr. Bill Hunter didn't want to do that. But Roger wouldn't back down. The Russian was weird, and Brownback figured it was best to go through this sooner rather than later. Well, when the Russian found out that his position was under review and he was to go through some evaluations, he became pretty angry. And he followed up with a formal complaint of discrimination against Crichton. Bill Hunter really wanted to avoid this whole thing, getting blown out of proportion. But Roger Brumbach had already made up his mind. So Bill decided to try and intervene and help the Russian find a new assignment at a different hospital. That way this whole thing could be brushed aside quietly. The Russian would be placed somewhere else and everyone at Crichton could relax. Bill Hunter found what he felt would be a good fit for the Russian at a medical center in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. It was something that Bill was sure would be better suited for him. And fortunately, Bill was right. The Russian accepted the job and it ended up working out for the better for the Russian. So he went ahead and withdrew his discrimination complaint. And because the whole thing ended on pretty good terms between Bill and the Russian, he was certain that the guy would not have a bone to pick with him. But another one of Roger and Bill's department colleagues wasn't so quick to cross the Russian off the suspect list. He could still be angry at the entire Crichton pathology program. In addition to that, they kind of thought the Russian guy looked like the police composite sketch of their killer. As they sat there mulling over the possibility that the Russian had something to do with this, the homicide detectives on Tom and Shirley's case happened to stop in at Crichton to talk to Bill and Roger. They floated the Russian theory. The police kind of liked it. In fact, a couple of days later, investigators stopped in at Bill's house to talk to him further about it. And while he was able to provide investigators with a short list of names that he thought might be worth looking into, they were particularly interested in the Russian. But it didn't take long for that lead to fall flat too. At the time Tom and Shirley were being murdered, the Russian was at work in Pittsburgh. And that was a seemingly rock-solid alibi. But doctors, they live and work by different standards than us regular folk. The Russian comes to work, he does some autopsies, and he carries on with his day. And oddly enough, the Russian had not actually taken part in any autopsies the day of the murders. So they wondered if he could have made the trip from Pittsburgh to Omaha and back. There was an ever so slight possibility that that happened. So the detectives looked into it. This is almost a 1,000 mile or 1,600 kilometer journey. So the detectives tracked the Russian down. And it just so happened he wasn't in Pittsburgh anymore. He had gone to work as a pathologist in Calgary, Alberta. Detective Warner and an FBI agent flew there to see him. The Russian was a little bit surprised to be visited by the American police and FBI. 
but for the most part, he was friendly and willing to sit down and talk. But the Russian being a suspect in Tom and Shirley's case was already a long shot. And the more they talked to him, the less they felt he had anything to do with it. They didn't see any reason why he would want to hurt Bill or his son. So Detective Warner went ahead and left Calgary and his suspicions behind. Unfortunately, at the beginning of 2009, the powers that be at the Omaha Police Department decided that Detectives Warner and Waugh needed to be placed on different, more pressing cases. And Tom and Shirley's case was going to officially be marked as cold. Though neither detective thought that the case was cold because they still had leads that they needed to track down. Until those leads could be eliminated, they did not consider it cold at all. Detective Moi, of course, was talking about the college kid that he had found on Wyville, who was talking to Tom online. He still hadn't finished looking at that angle, and he was hoping to even find more. However, soon, Tom and Shirley's families would mark the first anniversary of their murders, and their file had officially been transferred to Omaha's cold case unit, which had just formed less than a year earlier. Fortunately, the lead cold case detective was pretty determined to work Tom and Shirley's case thoroughly and do what he could to try and solve it. After all, it was Omaha's most high-profile murder case at the time. So time passed. Witnesses, family members, and friends, they were spoken to over and over again. Tom's friends from school were becoming teenagers and heading into high school soon. The hope was that time would bring about some renewed memories. Maybe Tom's friends would be less and less intimidated by police as they got older. Detective Wall would eventually track down Tom's Wyville college-age friend, and he too was quickly crossed off the list of suspects. Tom and Shirley's case was broadcast on America's Most Wanted four years after their murders. The Russian pathologist was investigated yet again, and his alibi grew even more airtight when they found that a little while before the murders took place, he was logged into his computer at his hospital in Pittsburgh. Shirley's family had grown frustrated with the pace of the investigation. They just didn't think that police were doing everything that they could to solve her murder. Every time they turned around, there was a different detective assigned to her case. And that always felt like starting all over again from the beginning. And then, when the Omaha police actually turned to America's Most Wanted for help, Shirley's family really started to believe the police had absolutely no idea which direction to go or where to look. They saw it as a desperate, last-ditch effort on the part of the police department to try and solve the case. Fed up with the whole thing, Shirley's family went ahead and hired their own private investigator. They were certain that there was a link to Crichton. They just needed someone completely focused on the case to take a good, hard look at it and leave no stone unturned. 
Shirley's family had also latched on to the Russian having been involved. But over time, their private investigator could in no way connect him to the crime. He just wasn't there. And there was no possible way that he was. So the years ticked by. 2009, 2010, 2011, 2012, and finally, 2013. And sadly, the police were still no closer to identifying Tom and Shirley's murderer. Early on in the investigation, Detective Moi had reached out to the FBI's Criminal Behavior Unit to see if there was anything that could be gleaned from an analysis of the crime and the crime scene. An agent had even come in from Quantico to see the scene of the murders firsthand. But their report was mostly vague and mostly disappointing. But one thing did stand out that had investigators wondering. The FBI criminal behavior profile suggested that the killer they were looking for was a serial killer who really didn't set down roots in any one specific place. A drifter, in other words. The label of serial killer got investigators thinking and worried. The thought had crossed their mind. But when they looked back at any other earlier murder cases that may have been similar to Tom and Shirley's, they didn't find anything that appeared to be a good match to their killer. But on the flip side of that, could that mean that their killer wasn't finished yet? The thought of it was bone chilling. How are you supposed to sit around and wait for the next murder? So now our story brings us to Mother's Day of 2013. It was Sunday, May 12th. The location is the Brumbeck home, also located in Omaha, Nebraska. I've already mentioned Roger Brumbeck a couple of times already in this story, but just to refresh, he was the head of the pathology department at Crichton Medical Center. Mary Brumbeck was his wife. They were both 65 years old in 2013. Their son Owen, living in Denver, Colorado at the time, It was his turn to be up at the crack of dawn to take care of his infant daughter, Savannah. He and his wife usually took turns, but it was Mother's Day, so maybe he decided to go ahead and do it for her and let mom sleep in. Well, Owen had a habit of calling his mom pretty regularly. They were close, and he knew she always looked forward to his calls. But on this particular morning, Since he was already up and wide awake with the baby, he went ahead and surprised his mom with a FaceTime call from the both of them. Even though Roger and Mary had just visited with them in person a week earlier, they simply could not get enough of their grandbaby. But just like any other average infant, Savannah was over FaceTime after a couple of minutes. So Owen told his mom that he was going to go ahead and hang up and take care of baby. He wished her a happy Mother's Day and they would talk again soon. 
As it were, Roger and Mary Brumbeck were actually about to embark on the next phase in their lives. They were leaving Omaha, Nebraska. They were headed east to the state of West Virginia, where they had family members that they wanted to be closer to now that Roger was finally going to retire from Crichton Medical Center. While he had only been there for a dozen years, his career in medicine had its beginnings in 1967, so it'd been well over four decades. And he wasn't exactly going into full retirement. Roger Brumbeck had been a brilliant doctor, and he still had some gas left in the tank. He wasn't quite finished leaving his mark on the medical world. In fact, something I'd never run across in all the cases I've ever read about, listened to, watched, or covered myself. This doctor, Roger Brumbeck, had actually discovered an entirely new and unique species of monkeys. I mean, who does that? Yeah, Roger wasn't finished making his contributions to medicine, and he was going to go work as an administrator at the West Virginia School of Osteopathic Medicine. He was also still working on a couple of journals that he had yet to publish. So I guess in this case, we could use the term retirement pretty loosely here. As for Roger's wife, Mary, she was as equally accomplished in her career, first as a pharmacist, later on as an attorney. When Roger accepted the position as the head of the pathology department at Crichton, Mary went ahead and retired from practicing law and dedicated her time to philanthropy and charity. And even with all that going on with the Brumbacks, they also managed to raise three children. Owen, who I've already mentioned, another son, Daryl, and a daughter, Audrey. Dr. Audrey, to be exact, because she followed in her father's career path. The Brumbeck children had very close, loving relationships with their parents. Every week, like clockwork, Audrey would receive a beautifully handwritten letter from her mom, without fail. One letter every single week. She was all the way over living and practicing medicine in San Francisco, California. It was her mom's way of keeping in touch with her. Well, as it turned out, she too made a FaceTime call on Mother's Day to her mom and dad. The call lasted an hour. In fact, her parents had been laughing so hard that Audrey could not resist the urge to take a screen grab of her mom and dad as they were doubled over in laughter. And this would be the last time Audrey would ever speak to her parents. As I mentioned, the Brumbacks were getting ready to move. Roger had already given Crichton the official word that he was retiring from his position. And just by coincidence, a couple of Roger's colleagues at Crichton were also getting close to retiring around the same time. And those would be doctors Agendra and Chandra Butra. Chandra was a pathologist and worked closely with Roger Brumbeck and Bill Hunter. Agendra was also a physician at Crichton, just not in the pathology department. These people were a tight-knit group. Their kids were all grown and out of the house, 
and the Beatles were looking forward to being retired and enjoying the fruits of their labor. On Mother's Day, the Butras had plans to meet up with some other close friends of theirs, Richard and Florence Thrill. When they were finished up at their lunch date, the two couples walked together to their cars. But Richard, he had a walker to help him stay steady and upright, so the trek to the car was kind of slow and cumbersome. So slow, in fact, Agendra started giving Richard the business. They were going to get even older before they'd ever make it to their cars. Well, in their own time, they eventually got to their vehicles and parted ways. Agendra and Chandra Butra didn't realize it right away. But Richard, taking his sweet old time getting to his car with his walker, may have actually saved them from meeting with an untimely demise. Just as the Butras were getting close to their house, both of their cell phones began to chime. This wasn't a call or a text, but rather an alert that got automatically sent to their phones, informing them that something had set off the security system at their house. They were very close to arriving at home. They eventually pulled into the driveway, and while Chandra waited in the car, Agendra walked around the house to see what may have caused the alarm to go off. There wasn't anything immediately obvious. There didn't seem to be anybody around. But when they got inside the house eventually and looked at the alarm monitor, it indicated that something or someone had attempted to force open their back patio doors. As it were, Agendra had a pretty substantial piece of furniture situated in such a way that made it nearly impossible for anyone to have forced their back doors open. The Butras didn't see anything else out of place. Nobody appeared to be lurking around. So they figured whoever it was had been spooked off by the alarm system. So they let the incident go without making any calls to the police or to the alarm company. So yeah. I was serious when I said that their old friend's walker had probably saved their lives. Because as it turned out, there was someone who was attempting to break into the Butra's home. It was somebody Chandra Butra was very familiar with. She had been his supervisor at Crichton Medical Center. And this man just so happened to have had a very serious problem with Chandra Butra, a very serious problem. In fact, he had shown up there on that particular day to confront her and let her know exactly how angry and resentful he was towards her. But her locked door betrayed him, and this only fueled this man's rage. He just couldn't get that damn door open. So the man got back into his car a black Mercedes-Benz SUV, and quickly drove off. He was frustrated with just about everything. This just wasn't going right. He needed to calm down and try to rethink what he was going to do next. He drove a short distance trying to find a place to regroup and figure out what plan B was going to be. But he didn't really know where anything was. 
He had briefly lived in Omaha, but that was years ago. He did visit a little more than five years earlier, back in March of 2008. But he didn't stay long. He was there to get one thing accomplished, and afterwards, he quickly left. And I think we all know what this man was there to do on that particular day back in 2008. What made this man's plan B more challenging was the fact that he had been drinking some beers. And I don't mean drinking beers like a regular person would drink beers. It wasn't like this guy would settle in, have a couple of cans of beer, and go about his business. In fact, it was kind of the other way around. He constantly had beers. Being drunk was his baseline. Like seriously, he was never sober. He drank all day. He drank into the night. He'd go to sleep drunk. He'd wake up a little less drunk. And then he'd begin to get himself back up to his normal level of drunkenness. So as he was driving, he soon noticed a Wingstop restaurant. He went in there to try and get something to eat. And to look up the address of someone else that he had in mind that he would have liked to have paid a visit to. He parked his car and slowly walked inside. Not only was this man drunk, he was quite overweight. He ordered some wings, he ate, and he eventually made his way back out to his car. During this time, he had gotten onto his phone and was doing some Google searching. He did not want this trip to Omaha to be all for nothing. In the Google app, he typed in the name Dr. Roger Brumbach. And just like that, the Brumbach's home address populated in this man's Google results. And it wasn't all that far away. Brumbach was better than nothing. So he began driving towards their home the home that the Brumbachs were in the process of getting ready to sell and leave behind. Mary Brumbach had been doing some reading after her FaceTime calls with her kids, while Roger was out towards the front entranceway of the home doing a bit of touch-up painting. As he was working, someone knocked on the door. They hadn't been expecting company, so Roger most likely figured he would give whoever it was a couple of seconds to start saying whatever it is they were there to say before letting them know that he wasn't interested. Thank you. Goodbye. But we won't ever know what Roger's mind was able to put together when he did open that door and saw this man standing there on his porch. Did Roger Brumbach have any idea who he was looking at? Did he remember who this man was? Or did he simply draw a blank, figuring this was someone soliciting or there to give him some religious leaflets? We just don't know. But the man standing on his front porch certainly knew who Dr. Roger Brumbach was. About a dozen years passed since they last interacted with one another, but the man at the door was no stranger. We just can't be sure if Roger had been able to put it together in time. 
Before Roger had any time to react at all, the man at the door retrieved a pistol from his jacket. As soon as Roger saw the weapon, he went for it, attempting to get it away from this man who was now clearly attempting to attack him. They fought over the gun, but the man was able to fire three times before the struggle for the gun caused the ammunition clip to be ejected from it. It landed on the ground near the threshold of the front door. Roger Brumbeck had been shot three times, once in the leg, once in his shoulder, and once through his abdomen, which would prove to be a fatal gunshot wound. It had torn through a massive abdominal blood vessel. Roger crumpled to the ground as he bled to death. Mary, having heard the gunshots and commotion, rushed towards the foyer where she knew her husband to have been painting. There she found this man, unknown to her, standing there looking down at Roger as he lay on the ground. A struggle ensued between Mary and the intruder. And while the attacker no longer had a gun that he could fire, he went ahead and began beating Mary about the head and face with the butt of the pistol. He had actually struck her so hard that the pistol broke and parts of it started falling to the ground. Mary, too, fell down, and it gave her attacker a moment to find another weapon to use in order to continue his attack. So he headed into the kitchen. There wasn't a knife block sitting out on the countertop. If they had one, it was probably already packed and ready to be moved. So the intruder began looking through the drawers. He eventually opened one that had what he needed. A variety of knives mixed in with other kitchen utensils. He chose two of them and went back towards his victims laying in the entranceway. Mary was still alive and alert when the attacker reappeared armed with her kitchen knives. And she continued to put up a tremendous fight for her life as he resumed his attack. There would end up being 20 defense-type wounds on both of Mary's hands and arms. There was one wound on her wrist where the knife had gone completely through. One of her thumbs had nearly been sliced off. But soon Mary weakened and she could no longer fight this man. Her attacker finally took the knife and began stabbing her repeatedly on the right side of her neck just below her ear. Mary's carotid artery and jugular vein had both been completely severed. But he did not leave the knife protruding from Mary's neck. He took it with him as he made his way back over to where Roger lay. And he used the knife to stab Roger six times in the right side of his neck. There was no indication that Roger fought at all while he was being stabbed. So it's been surmised that he was already dead or close to death. But the killer, I guess, wanted to leave his signature. Roger's carotid and jugular were also completely severed. The killer then walked calmly back over to where Mary lay dead or dying. He let go of the knife. It landed on the floor near her body. 
He took one last look at Mary to make sure that she was dead. Satisfied that she was, their killer left. It's worth mentioning that this man, this killer, his plan had actually failed for the second time. You've probably already put it together that the Brumbeck's killer is the same person who murdered Tom and Shirley five years earlier. And what I mean by his plan having failed is that these people, none of them, were his intended targets. Back in 2008, he was targeting Tom's parents, Bill and Claire Hunter. And now five years later, and his second set of victims, again, were not the ones that he had come to Omaha, Nebraska for. He wanted doctors Chandra and Agendra Butra. But because he was unable to bypass their security system, he had to settle for Roger and Mary Brumbeck instead. And he was just going to have to be satisfied with that for now. He got back into his black Mercedes, and he got on the interstate and began heading back to his home. The Brumbacks would lay dead for two days before their bodies were discovered. And they were discovered by some piano movers that they had hired and were scheduled to be there that morning on Tuesday, the 14th. The piano mover in charge was pretty confused as to why there didn't seem to be anybody at home. They had an appointment to be there. It was the right house. The Brumbecks were giving away the piano because they weren't taking it with them. He finally tried the door and found it to be unlocked. He stopped in his tracks as soon as he saw the ejected pistol magazine cartridge laying on the ground in the doorway. He dialed 911. And Omaha, Nebraska was about to get some news that was going to bring up memories of that eerily similar crime from five years earlier. Two days after Mother's Day of 2013, Detective Derek Moir solemnly walked towards the front door of the Brumbeck home. All he was told was there were two deceased victims, one male, one female, both approximately in their mid-60s. A responding officer who had been one of the first to arrive gestured over to a trio of men standing off to the side waiting to be spoken to, the piano movers who were scheduled to be there at the home that morning and ultimately ended up calling 911. The one who actually got on the phone and made the call was Jason Peterson. And he had no idea as to what was going on. It was just an odd feeling that something wasn't right when nobody came to the door or answered the phone. He eventually would try the door, and it was unlocked, but when he pulled it open, that's when he saw the ammunition cartridge on the ground and decided that he had gone far enough. Ironically, Jason's piano moving company's motto that had been emblazoned on all their paperwork and equipment was, Life Never Stops Moving. When Jason called 911, he couldn't say specifically what was happening. He just had this feeling something wasn't right. His suspicions were confirmed when the first officers arrived at the scene 
and discovered the carnage inside. And the Brumbecks, they had been laying there undisturbed for nearly two days. Detective Moi studied the scene. When he received the call that came in from the first officers there at the crime scene, identified this as being a likely murder-suicide event. That assumption had been made based solely on the fact that the home was located in a quiet, private, affluent neighborhood. And with there being one male and one female victim, it often added up to murder-suicide. There had even been instances where couples, usually elderly couples, they settle on a murder-suicide pact that they were just ready to go and they wanted to go together. Detective Moi was still taking it all in. Him having been called to this crime scene was really by chance. In the five years since Tom and Shirley's murder, he actually did not stay in the homicide unit with the police department. It had been difficult on him and his family that his work days never really seemed to have a beginning or an end. His work day just kind of cycled through and he'd have to be ready for work at the drop of a hat. So he requested to be transferred to a different unit and that request was granted. He went to major crimes, sexual assault, robbery, Still serious crimes, but not murders. While the work was not as strenuous and Detective Moi's home life and time with his family had vastly improved, after a couple of years, he was kind of itching to get back into homicide. As it turned out, he kind of missed the work. And he also missed the bonding and relationships that he had forged with his fellow homicide detectives. There was finally an opening in 2011, and Detective Moi jumped at the chance to get back into the homicide unit. And the work environment had actually changed for the better in the time that he was with the major crimes unit. There had been a new lieutenant assigned to head the homicide unit, and she was much more sympathetic and understanding to the need for her detectives to stay connected to their families and their home lives. So going back to homicide wasn't going to have the same detrimental impact on Detective Moi as it did the first time around. So the way the homicide unit was set up is that there were three teams made up of four detectives that go in a rotation. In other words, say your team is on call for a 12-hour cycle. If a homicide takes place during those 12 hours, then your team will be the one called in. If nothing happens in that 12-hour time frame, then your team is off and the next team up is on call. I don't know for sure if it goes in 12-hour cycles. It could be eight or it could be longer than that. I was just giving an example. And actually, the first time I had ever heard of this type of rotation was during the Jody Arias case. But it wasn't the detectives that were on call in cycles. It was the prosecutors that were. If you remember back to her case, and I know I reference it a lot. It's because I watched the trial. It was the last thing that I 
did before going back into the workforce. So the prosecutor on her case was Juan Martinez. I don't even think he's an attorney anymore. I think he has since been disbarred or something. But anyway, he described it in his book that the prosecutors are in an on-call cycle type of rotation. And if a murder takes place and it's during your cycle, then you have to go over to the crime scene. That way, they get the person who will eventually go on to prosecute the murder to the crime scene in person to see everything firsthand. So he was the one that was on call that morning that uh, Travis Alexander's body was discovered. He only had like about a half hour left and he would have been off. If it had been any longer, the prosecutor would have been a completely different person. So anyway, when the 911 call came in and police were summoned to the Brumbeck home, once it was determined that they needed to get homicide investigators there, it happened to be during Detective Moi's on-call cycle. His partners were Scott Warner. Remember, they had worked together on the 2008 murder. Another detective on their team was Ryan Davis. And their fourth detective was Nick Hertford. And he would be the one that would stay at the office and handle things on that end as needed while the rest of his team went over to the crime scene. And Detective Moi really came to like and appreciate this new system of assigning cases. It was much more organized. There was better communication between colleagues. And there was not going to be any more passing cases around. If you got assigned to a case, it was going to be yours until it was finished. Ultimately, it was speculated that the murders of Tom and Shirley may have slipped through the cracks and went cold because of the way the cases went through an unorganized merry-go-round of detectives. Information, evidence, and details would inevitably be lost or forgotten or misplaced or overlooked. It wouldn't take long for Detective Moi to go into the Brumbach home where these two people lay dead for him to begin to connect the dots to the other unsolved double murder case he had from back in 2008. After speaking to the piano movers, the detectives began making their way inside the home. They did not touch or move the ammunition cartridge near the front door. There was one shell casing on the ground near the cartridge, and there was a bullet hole in the front door itself. Once they went through the threshold, they were hit with the strong odor of decomposition. So they at least knew that this murder didn't happen that day. And they were killed, likely, a day or two earlier at least. Roger's body was lying very close to the threshold of the front door. Mary's body was a little bit further inside the home and towards the left, but still visible from the entranceway. And the amount of blood that had been splattered, spilled, and pooled was tremendous. Clearly, this was not a murder-suicide. Both of these people fought hard for their lives. It was brutal, chaotic, and frenzied. In looking at Roger's body, Detective Moi made note of the fact that he had been shot at least a couple of times that he could see. And it appeared as though while he lay on the floor dead or dying, there was a secondary attack with a knife with stab wounds clustered around the right side of his neck. 
The killer shot this man first, but to ensure that he would not survive, he used a knife from the kitchen to stab him in the neck for good measure. Everything about it felt like this murder was committed by someone who was very angry with the victim. This was up close and personal. The detectives made note of the fact that this couple were in the process of moving out of this home. Roger's paint supplies were still there nearby. The piano had been staged near the door, ready for the movers to take it away. Only if it had been a couple more days later, the Brumbecks would have probably been long gone, living their new lives in West Virginia. The detectives carefully made their way from Roger's body to Mary's. As they looked around at the floor, they noticed that there were pieces of a handgun laying there on the ground. They could see that there was a section of the main frame of the gun that had been broken, causing all the other parts to fall off too. They glanced around the room some more, and that's when they noticed a kitchen knife on the carpet off to the side, but not too far away from Mary's body. Looking closer at her, Detective Moi could see that there was a second knife partially tucked under her body. He could also see that this woman fought hard. The massive defense wounds to her hands and arms were a testament to that. She had some blunt force injuries to her head and face, and she had suffered some massive stab wounds to the right side of her neck, just below her ear, that would ensure her death. Detectives Moi and Warner glanced at each other, and they probably didn't have to say anything at all. Both of their thoughts began drifting towards the same exact terrifying possibility. It's another double homicide. Two victims, a peaceful, quiet, wealthy suburb. Nothing of value had been stolen. Nothing had been ransacked and there were a cluster of wounds on the right sides of their necks that severed the carotid artery and the jugular veins. They both knew what the other was thinking. But Detective Moi, his mind froze in disbelief. Could this really be happening? His mind was still trying to process this as he carefully went into the kitchen. There had been two drawers pulled open and left open. One was the junk drawer. The other was an assortment of kitchen utensils and knives. And there were several knives that matched the ones that were in the living room. So the killer did not bring those knives with him. He retrieved them from the kitchen and used them to carry out these murders. Detective Moi and Warner finished up their observations at the scene. They both expressed their fear that these two victims were killed by the same murderer that killed Tom and Shirley. They really, really did not want that to be the case, but they had been doing this job long enough to know that this probably wasn't a coincidence. And they were right, it wasn't. Back at the police headquarters, their fourth partner, Detective Hertford, looked up the owner of the property where the murders had taken place. That turned out to be Roger Brumbeck. Another quick internet search revealed that 
He was a doctor and he worked at Crichton Medical Center. And he just so happened to be the head of the pathology department. The horrifying truth was coming into focus. Dr. Roger Brumbeck was a colleague and direct supervisor of Dr. William Hunter, the father of their 11-year-old victim from five years earlier. They were officially looking for a serial killer. Detective Hertford passed along the Crichton School of Medicine connection to his partners who were still at the crime scene. Even more specifically, their connection to the pathology department. That, coupled with the signature neck wounds, left no doubt that these four murders were, in fact, connected. The urgency to figure out exactly how the Brumbucks and the Hunters would be targeted for murder grew exponentially. Detective Warner quickly got Bill Hunter on the phone. They needed to talk to him right away. In short order, numerous investigators showed up at Bill's house, desperately hoping that he would be able to bring things more into focus. When the detectives got to his house, it was not lost on them that they were only six miles away from the Brumbecks. That's 9.6 kilometers. They sat down with Bill Hunter and informed him of the Brumbeck murders. He was in complete shock as they began peppering him with question after question after question. Bill did think it was out of character for Roger to have failed to show up for a lecture that he was scheduled to deliver at the medical school that Tuesday, the same day that the bodies were discovered. It was to be Roger's farewell address to the school, but he had been a no-show. But no alarm bells went off. In addition to that, even as Bill sat there and listened to what the detectives were telling him, that they were certain that someone affiliated with Crichton School of Medicine's pathology department was responsible for the four murders, he still was hesitant to believe it. These people are doctors, well-respected individuals who have taken a sacred oath and made it their life's work to preserve life. Bill thought long and hard about it as investigators continued to lob questions at him, going as deep as he could into the recesses of his memories. If there was anyone at all that stood out, anyone who had a beef with him or Roger Brumbeck. The Russian came up again. While they had already come to the conclusion back when Tom and Shirley were murdered that the Russian had no reason to harbor any resentment towards Bill, well, now maybe he had a problem with Roger. He was the one who wanted the Russian to undergo a psychological evaluation. And if you remember, Bill Hunter had managed to work around that and found the Russian a new job at a different hospital. Bill did recall that a couple of residents had been fired more than 10 years earlier for a prank that they had pulled. He had a hard time even remembering their names because it had been so long ago. In the meantime, Detective Moi was able to piece together what most likely happened at the Brumbeck home and when it happened. The trails of blood and broken gun parts told the story. Roger had been attacked in the doorway. As a fight over the gun ensued, the killer fired off three times before the ammunition cartridge fell out of it. Having heard the gunshots and the commotion, Mary began making her way towards the front, at which time the killer began using the now useless gun to pistol whip her several times in the head. This caused the gun to break into pieces and they fell to the ground. With Mary injured but not completely incapacitated, the killer hurried into the kitchen 
and pulled open a drawer. It was junk. He pulled open a second drawer, and he found knives and then resumed his attack on Mary. She fought until she could take no more and collapsed to the ground. The killer then stabbed the both of them numerous times in the neck, cutting their carotid and jugular, the coup de gras, as they call it. When Detective Wah spoke to the Brumbeck's kids, they confirmed that the clothing that they were wearing when they were found murdered were the same clothes that they had on when they had last FaceTime with them on Mother's Day. So the Brumbeck's had been dead for almost two days when the piano movers showed up and called police. Narrowing down the timeline even more, when the detective spoke to some of the neighbors who lived near and around the Brumbeck home, one witness reported hearing what sounded like gunshots, but because their neighborhood was so safe and gunfire was never a regular occurrence, it was assumed that the noise came from something other than a gun. The neighbor heard those noises around 3.30 on the afternoon of Mother's Day. And just like the crime scene from five years earlier, the killer again left no physical or forensic evidence behind that could be used to link him to the crime. There was no blood, no DNA, no fingerprints, no fibers, nothing. This killer was meticulous. In fact, you could even say he was as meticulous as a doctor, perhaps. It was beginning to come together. They were not only looking for a serial killer, they were looking for a doctor who was a serial killer. Early on, investigators felt that the person who killed Tom and Shirley knew exactly what they were doing when they stabbed into the right side of their necks. A person trained in the medical profession would certainly know how to do that, how to make sure there was no coming back from those stab wounds. But if there's one thing the detectives learned not to do is to get tunnel vision. While they were fairly certain that the common link between the hunters and the Brumbecks and the killer was Crichton's pathology department, they weren't completely ready to ignore other possible leads. However, by Wednesday, the day after the discovery of the Brumbeck's bodies, the Crichton connection theory gained even more momentum. Word of the Brumbeck's murders spread fast and colleagues at Crichton became worried. But none were more alarmed than one particular couple, the Butras. Remember them? They had met up with their friends, Richard and Florence Thrill, on Mother's Day. After they had lunch, Richard had slowly lumbered to his car using his walker, and the Butras had made a joke about it and the pace that he was moving. And then they parted ways. And just as the Butras were about to pull up to their home, their home security phone apps began chiming, alerting them that someone had been attempting to break into their home. And when they got there, they were able to eventually determine that whoever it was tried to get through the back door, but decided to give up and left the area. Yeah, there was no thinking that what happened with the Butras was a coincidence. And when they heard about the murders, they decided to call in and speak to the detectives. Agendra Butra got a hold of Detective Herfort on the line. He was really uncertain as to what to say or what to do because he wasn't even sure if he knew that he had anything important to add to the investigation. And he didn't want to waste the detective's valuable time if this turned out to be nothing. 
but he let him know that there had been an attempted break-in at their home and they believed it to be the same day and around the same time that the Brumbecks were killed. Agendra explained that his wife, Dr. Chandra Butra, was a close colleague of both doctors Brumbeck and Hunter, that they worked in the school's pathology department together. Agendra expressed his uncertainty once again that he wasn't even sure that he should be contacting the police, but their other colleagues at Crichton insisted that they tell police what happened. Detective Herfort knew that this was important. He sent Detective Oscar Dieguez over to the Butra residence to take down their information and see if there was any kind of evidence that they could come up with at their home. The Butras described that Mother's Day and how they had gone to lunch with some friends and that when they got home, their burglar alarm had been triggered and their system indicated that someone had attempted to force open their back door. But whoever it was could not gain entry into their home and apparently decided to leave quickly. As Detective Dieguez listened, it dawned on him that maybe they would be able to get some touch DNA evidence off the handles of the back door. So he requested that a technician be sent over to the Butra home and have the doorknobs swabbed for evidence. And this would turn out to have been a very pivotal move. The break-in attempt at the Butra's home happened to be one hour before the Brumbecks were murdered. Omaha law enforcement decided to not let the public know about the failed break-in at the Butra home. The media did pick up on the Crichton Medical School connection, and they were off and running with that angle of the story. But investigators privately needed to come to terms with what they had here without letting the media cause too much of a mass panic that their city of Omaha, Nebraska had been struck by a serial killer and the serial killer was hunting Crichton Medical School pathologists. The chief of the Omaha Police Department, Todd Schmatterer, readied himself for a very tense press conference. He had already gone and spoken to members of Crichton's pathology department and they were terrified, and rightfully so, because any of them could be the next target. The chief announced to the members of the media that he was abundantly aware that there is a tremendous amount of fear in the community. And because of the recent Brumbeck killings possibly being linked to the 2008 killings, his department has officially formed a task force consisting of investigators from various agencies and their entire focus would be going after the person responsible for these murders. Even though the chief spoke to the media with complete confidence, he was really hiding the fact that he was as worried as everyone else, that this killer wasn't done and that he could strike again at any moment. They had to get this person behind bars. The task force consisted of a total of 21 members of law enforcement from various local, state, and federal agencies. The chief's deputy chief would be in charge. Working alongside her would be the Omaha Police Department's bureau captain, the head of their homicide department, 12 members of their homicide unit, 
and this would include old partners, Detectives Moi and Warner. In addition, the Nebraska State Patrol and the FBI would be sending in agents to lend support. The FBI had actively been involved since the 2008 investigation, but this time the agents were there specifically to investigate what they were officially labeling as a serial murder case. Being given that specific classification, it would enable them access to additional resources as needed at every level, federal, state, and local. It would also allow the task force to investigate, track, and surveil potential suspects across state lines. Remember, back in 2008, there was that silver Honda CRV that had out-of-state plates. The last thing they wanted to do was get caught up in state line technicalities. With the FBI involved, they did not have to worry about that. An unused room on the sixth floor of the police department was set up for the task force to use discreetly because the chief did not want anything being leaked to anyone. One of the biggest fears in all of this would be that something would happen or that they would do something that would cause the killer to become agitated and possibly even provoke him into killing some more. The detective who had been the central part of our entire story so far, Detective Moi, he received his assignment, and that was to look into Mary Brumbeck and her background. He needed to track down all of her friends and colleagues and interview them to see if there was anything that could potentially be a lead in the case. Were there any reasons why Mary would be the target of a killer? Was she having any problems with her husband, Roger? Marital problems, financial problems? Was there anything suspicious at all about Mary? Detective Moi saw evidence of the philanthropy and the charity work that Mary had been involved in. He tracked down people who knew her through her volunteer work, and there was absolutely nothing there. In fact, Detective Moi couldn't even remember ever meeting a group of people who were as generous and kind and caring and selfless as these people that Mary worked with. Their whole mission was to help advance and expand higher education for women around the world. Detective Moi was pretty sure that he wasn't going to find a serial killer through Mary's philanthropic work. But they did say that if they had to make a wild guess, they'd have to say it might have been that Russian doctor. Look into him. Well, Detective Moi had already been down that rabbit hole, back up again and back down again. He already knew that there was nothing there. And then two weeks after the murder, Detective Moi was over talking to Mary's friends and associates. His immediate supervisor agreed that there was nothing to be found and told him, okay, let me get you going on to something else. In that conference room that had become the task force headquarters, the room had actually become filled up with dozens and dozens of large black binders, each one of them representing the personnel file of every former and current Crichton resident or intern in the pathology department. Several of the task force investigators were brought in to comb through every page of every binder. They had to just grab one, read through everything, and repeat. Detective Moss sat down in the conference room, and a few minutes later, his supervisor placed a thick black binder in front of him and told him to start there. The detective looked at it, 
He turned it on its side and saw the name on the label, Dr. Anthony J. Garcia. The year listed was 2001. But the one thing that stood out about this binder that set it apart from all the others was that it was thicker than the rest of them for some reason. Now, there had been some binders that had been read through by the various investigators taking turns looking at all of them that seemed as though there could have been a connection or something suspicious going on. But one or two quick phone calls later, and they would be able to determine that those specific individuals were nowhere near the Omaha area anymore. So Detective Ma sat down with this binder in front of him and flipped it open and began looking at Anthony Garcia's files. Garcia was born and raised in Southern California. He had been accepted into medical school and attended the University of Utah, Salt Lake City. In 1999, he received his degree in medicine. In July of 2000, Garcia came to Crichton as a resident with an interest in becoming a pathologist. It was a four-year-long program, so if all one is planned, Garcia would be able to practice medicine with a specialty in pathology by 2004. But all did not go well for Garcia at Crichton Medical School. Not at all. He had not even completed a year of his residency when he was fired and kicked out of the program altogether. As Detective Moss scanned the pages in Garcia's file, one name that appeared repeatedly throughout his paperwork was Dr. Chandra Butra. Contained in the file and pertaining to Garcia's firing, there was a stack of emails, notes, and reports detailing a pretty serious dispute between Dr. Butra and Garcia that culminated in Garcia getting kicked out of the school. Detective Moi finally got to Garcia's actual letter of termination. He received it on May 22, 2001. And at the very bottom, it had been signed off by none other than Dr. William Hunter and Dr. Roger Brumbeck. Detective Moy sat there in stunned silence as he looked at the names on Garcia's termination paperwork. He decided that he was going to have to stay late that night to finish up this binder because he knew he was on to something. So the following morning, this would be May 28, 2013, Detective Moi ran a criminal background check on Anthony Garcia and he found that he lived in Terry Haute, Indiana. He had only one arrest on his record, and that was a DUI in Chicago, Illinois. So the detective went ahead and put out a call to the police over in Terry Haute and requested whatever information they had available on Anthony Garcia. They were glad to help, and by the next morning, they sent over an email with all of the documents they had related to Garcia, and this included his picture. In the book, Pathological, the author described Garcia's face as meaty. It sounds gross, but it's accurate. And not only did Garcia fit the general description that witnesses had given five years earlier, right down to his skin tone, Garcia also resembled the composite sketch that had been widely circulated. 
The emails he received also contained information regarding the various places that Garcia had lived. Omaha, Nebraska, Chicago, Illinois, Walnut, California, and Shreveport, Louisiana. And if you remember the report that investigators had received from the FBI's Behavioral Analysis Unit, they said that they would be looking for a serial killer who was kind of a drifter. Why was Garcia getting around so much, moving and going from different city to city across the country? Well, after Garcia graduated from medical school, instead of launching into a long, respectable, lucrative career in medicine, he seemed to have had difficulties getting to that next level. And it could be traced back to his firing from Crichton, after that happened, every place he went to to apply for a license to practice medicine, he would be denied. Crichton Medical School would receive alerts every time Garcia attempted to apply for a license or for work. They would contact Crichton to verify Garcia having worked there, and it would have been either Bill Hunter or Roger Brumbeck that would reply to any of those inquiries about him. They would verify that he had been a resident there for about 10 months but was terminated for poor job performance. It happened to Garcia a total of eight times. Eight times Garcia attempted to apply for work and eight times he was denied as a direct result of his termination from Crichton. This made for a very powerful motive. Detective Moi next looked at Garcia's motor vehicle records, which revealed that he had a black Mercedes SUV and a Ferrari registered to him there in Terre Haute, Indiana. When the detective got to the next page, he could literally feel the blood draining from his face. While living in Shreveport, Louisiana from 2007 through 2009, Anthony Garcia had a Honda CRV registered to him. In order to verify the color of the car, the detective ran a more specific check on the vehicle's identification number, and when the results populated, the vehicle was listed as silver. The silver Honda CRV, a handful of witnesses saw back in 2008. Despite this, Detective Moi continued to remain lost in a fog of disbelief. Like, is this really happening right now? After all of these years, was he actually holding the pages of the email that he printed out with all the answers that he'd been looking for? It was looking better and better with every turn of every page. Detective Moi conducted another search for the current location of the CRV and he found it registered to someone in California by the name of Fred Garcia. So the Honda was still in the family. The detective next went over some witness statements from back in 2008 when they had said that the Honda had out-of-state license plates. They described it as having pastel colors on it, kind of like a peachy pink sort of. And in looking at some Louisiana plates from 2008, he found a pastel-colored license plate with a sunset that was light pink and pastel colored. And oh, by the way, Anthony Garcia had been fired from LSU Medical School in Shreveport in 2008. 
And one more thing the detective had in Garcia's records that had been emailed to him from law enforcement in Indiana was that their records indicated that just days before the Brumbeck murders, Garcia had purchased a 9mm Smith & Wesson handgun. The cartridge recovered at the scene of the Brumbeck murders came from a 9mm Smith & Wesson. Detective Wall was convinced that Garcia was his serial killer. Now, he needed to make sure that they checked every single box, and for that, he was going to have to get his partners involved. They needed to nail down Garcia's whereabouts on Mother's Day of 2013. They just needed to figure out how to prove it. It was almost 600 miles or 965 kilometers to drive from Terry Haute, Indiana to Omaha, Nebraska. It's doable, especially for an unemployed, single, no kids, no money, no job, having washed up at only 40 kind of guy. That basically sums up Anthony Garcia. So that evening, after Detective Moi got home, he dozed off, yet he suddenly nearly leapt out of bed, almost stumbling to the ground. He thought he had just been jolted awake, and he thought it was 11-year-old Tom Hunter that had done it. This actually wasn't the first time that the detective had been startled by the presence of what he thought was Tom's spirit. Eventually, Detective Moi's eyes would adjust, and the room would become clear and quiet. If nothing else, Detective Moi was fairly certain that it was Tom's unsolved murder that sometimes took over his dreams. As he laid back down, he hoped that soon the both of them would be able to find peace. Okay, dreamers, I'm going to go ahead and end part two right here. I will go ahead and have my mental breakdown and I'll be back with part three. I'm just kidding. I'm fine. I'm fine. Don't worry. The case is starting to finally look good for law enforcement. And in the next part, we will pick it up from where we left off here, where investigators are going to start to comb through every single aspect of Anthony Garcia's life. They were desperate to get this killer off the streets, and they knew they needed to make sure they got it right. So thank you so much for listening. Part three will be along shortly. Like I said, this might go into four parts. I'm not quite sure yet. I'm trying to keep it under an hour and a half each part, so it's hard to tell. All right. I'm your host, Roseanne. We'll be back very soon with the next part. And until next time. Sweet dreams.